I have friends from a range of different religious identities. Religion plays something of a role in all of their lives. It is apparent to me that religion is a part of their goodness. Part of them that is good is connected to their faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today I'm speaking in good faith with Ibu Patel, who's on campus addressing students and faculty in the second annual BYU World Interfaith Harmony Week lecture. Ibu Patel, thank you so much for taking time. What a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. You grew up in Illinois, a degree in sociology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, a doctorate in sociology of religion from Oxford, where you studied on a Rhodes Scholarship. Your 2007 autobiography, Acts of Faith, was followed by a number of other books, recently Sacred Ground, Pluralism, Prejudice, and the Promise of America. I would just advise people to Google, and you'll find all the other books as well as many honorary degrees and awards. Can I talk to you just a minute about if you could go back and talk to young you when you were maybe 10 years old or maybe 15, would you be surprised where you ended up and what you're doing now, or were those seeds already planted somehow? That's a great question. I think I'd be shocked um, (laughs) if I talked to the 10 or 12-year-old me because I just didn't have any interest in religion. I just, you know, uh, there's a a great line, religion is an old man saying no, and that's, that's how I viewed it at the time. But I can tell a coherent, if not linear story retrospectively. I can point to the times in my life when I was younger and tell you how they how they lead up to this, even if it's if it's a, a winding path. Do you mind walking me through a few of those turning points? Maybe starting with just what role or what place did religion have in the home of you and your parents? So I come from an Ismaili Muslim family. My dad was not interested in rituals and practices, but the Ismaili Muslim identity was important to him. My mom was very interested in rituals and practices, but with just the kind of madness of modern American life and the religion of American achievement, we were not especially observant or practicing. And yet it was thick in the atmosphere of the house. And so we would say Bismillah before meals, and we never ate pork and you know, my mom would whisper Ismaili Muslim mantras into my ears, and she would say things like, say your salvat, which is a very important Ismaili Muslim prayer, really just a general Muslim prayer. It was in the atmosphere, right? Although it wasn't very organized. So that is important. The other thing that's important is I have friends from a range of different religious identities, and religion plays something of a role in all of their lives. And it becomes, it is apparent to me, if not explicit, at least I know that religion is a part of their goodness, right? The part of them that is good is connected to their faith. For instance, in high school years, I've read that you had friends of many different faiths, even eating together in the lunchroom. Was that regarded as something essential or was more like he likes this sport team, she likes this sport. Was it something more yeah. casual? It was, it was not only not casual, it was muted. It, 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 you know, it, it's only in retrospect that I realized that I have this really religiously diverse group of friends, a South Indian Hindu, a Cuban Jew, a Nigerian evangelical. My girlfriend is LDS, right? But back then it was just, you know, we were just kids who did well in school and liked to play basketball. Right. It wasn't it, the, the religious diversity of it wasn't a thing at all. So at what point did you start to have sort of a change of heart or change of thinking? So when I went to college at the University of Illinois in the early to mid 1990s, I got involved in diversity work. I got involved in social justice work. And for a while, I was an angry activist. But I always knew that that wasn't me. Right. It, 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 I knew it didn't do didn't really do much constructive in the world. And I also knew that it, it wasn't um It wasn't inherent to my personality. And when I learned about faith-based social justice activism, first in the form of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement, and then other similar kind of love-based, bring-the-kingdom-to-earth type religious movements, that was deeply attractive to me. And I spent a lot of time in those movements. And, And my journey back to Islam is really the time that I spent in those 
those faith-based movements that were first not Muslim and then find out that actually a part of my family's heritage has a lot to do with faith-based social action work and that it is, in fact, kind of organic to Islam. It's central to Islam. And the reason that I had ignored it for so long was because I had an adolescent discrimination against the familiar. Right? Basically, whatever my parents did couldn't be cool. You're not alone in that, as you say. (laughs) How did you dive back in? Was it in practice in a group, or was it religious texts, or time to pray, or or meditate? Uh, Dive back into religion in general, or to to Islam in particular. So I find out about the Catholic Worker Movement, whose main work is to start houses of hospitality where poor people can live in dignity. And I spend a summer in those houses of hospitality, traveling up and down the eastern seaboard, staying in Catholic worker houses and serving in their soup kitchens and spending time with the with the homeless people who live there. I lived at a Catholic worker house for, for a couple of months after I graduated from college. So it was it was immersive, right? I've always been geeky, so I'm doing a lot of reading at this time in the Catholic worker movement, but also in any kind of faith-based social action. I have a mentor named Brother Wayne Teasdale, who is a leader in inner faith work who takes me to different houses of worship where he's giving talks about interfaith work and he kind of cites me as somebody who's starting an interfaith youth movement, which is totally untrue at the time. But one of the things I love about, I think of this kind of as an, an American approach to life, like you, you tell a story and then you will it into being, you know? So, um, And then being with my grandmother in the summer of 1998 and watching the kind of work that she did, bringing destitute women into her home and kind of nursing them back to health and asking her why she did it and her saying, this is what Muslims do, is very powerful for me. So it's a lot of this is immersive experiences in faith-based social action movements, um, one of them being in my grandmother's home. It's wonderful that at that age, college... And, and then moving forward, that you seem to actually find joy in finding people who believe and see goodness. I was going to ask with Dorothy Day and others, when someone has a movement, when someone tries something new that's like, well, we've never done that before, or we've never worked with those people of other religions before, or we've never had a program like this in our school, there's usually some type of resistance. And I guess, how do you hold out long enough that good things start to happen from yeah, that? That's a great, so, so that's a great question. That That's... Um, how do you get a new organization started, et cetera? So I think it happens differently for everybody, right? I mean, I think it's a combination of telling the story in the world, meeting people who believe in the story, at least for a period of time, and putting facts on the ground, right? And then you're constantly telling the long-term story and the big vision, and you're putting pieces of it on the ground. And look, I mean, the, the LDS story is a part of this, right? So Joseph Smith is telling the story about a new Zion and a kingdom on earth, et cetera, et cetera, and pieces of it are being built, right? In Nauvoo, et cetera. So, so that, I think that's obviously happening at the highest level when you're building a whole new religious culture and civilization. But I think starting an organization, there, there are resonances of that. When you were helping develop what became President Obama's Interfaith and Community Service Campus Challenge, why on campus and why Interfaith Youth Corps rather than more of a generalized interfaith? So I think so much of this is that my changes happened when I was in college. So many people's changes happen in college, right? I mean, Tara Westover is educated. Her changes happen here at BYU. I think that that's such a badge of honor for you all that, you know, it's one of the treasures of American civilization that we have this network of colleges and universities where young people find their vocation and build the knowledge and skills to then go make that vocation their career and their life, right? And so I wanted to be a part of that. I I wanted to be a part of the treasure that is American higher education. And the other thing is, I started this when I was 22 or 23 years old, and the Pope didn't answer my phone call, right? It's not like religious leaders were accessible to me. What do you enjoy most, or what brings you fulfillment or joy as you watch it happen when you go on a campus and you see these interfaith councils trying to figure out what cooperation even means. You know, there's so many... As as opposed to encouraging tolerance. Yeah. 
you know, there, there's so many parts. I'm going to take that in a slightly different way. There's so many parts of my job that I enjoy, right? Like, like I enjoyed the being on a campus. I was just with BYU religion faculty earlier. I was with the joint interfaith student councils at UVU and BYU. Before that, I did an academic talk at UVU. I'll be doing a public keynote tonight, a couple of interviews in between. Um, this is a big part of my job is spending time on campuses. Another part of my job is writing books where, you know, there's there's a question I'm asking, like, what is an interfaith leader or what is interfaith leadership? What role has religious diversity played in American civilization? I'm following that for a couple of hundred pages in a book. I really like building an organization, the strategic plan, the, um, the uh, staff management part, at least at the upper levels. So, so what I enjoy is kind of the mix of things that I get to do and certainly seeing young people, um, get inspired by the idea of being an interfaith leader and then becoming an interfaith leader is something extremely powerful. Our time is limited and I'm very grateful. Uh, just a final question or two, which is, do you hear in your own faith tradition or in others, people saying, well, sure, it's nice to be nice to other people, but why not work on the, you know, supporting our own congregation? Why all this interfaith work? Do you hear that? You know, I, I heard a lot more of that earlier. And I think by now, I've been doing this for 15, 18, 20 years. And this is such an important, this is such a part of my identity that 99% of the places that I'm going, people know this is what I do. And they realize that this is the role that I play. And so I... 10 or 12 years ago, I would get that question more often. Now I'm kind of Ibu the interfaith guy. And, you know, this is, this is my contribution. Finally, just on the journey of your faith, what do you understand differently or better now than maybe 15, 20 years ago as far as, far as personal faith? It's a great question. So, you know, there's a... Um, there's a great column by David Brooks, the New York Times columnist from some years back, where he says, you know, as we go on in our lives, we realize when you're a young adult, how important other people have been in your life. You realize when you're a little older, how important institutions have been. And you realize when you're a little older than that, how important traditions have been, right? And the older I get, the more I realize that I'm an Ismaili Muslim in my bones. What do I mean by that? I really believe in institutions. And Ismailis are an institution-building people. Mormons are an institution-building people, right? I really believe in the importance of tradition, but not, not tradition as a heritage from the past that needs to be followed chapter and verse, but a tradition that is constantly being interpreted for the needs of the present, right? And, and Ismailis believe in a living intellectual tradition. I believe deeply in a connection to God and the divine, but I don't think that that needs to be done in an organized way all the time. So I carry my prayer beads with me all the time, right? So I, I am less, I am a pulling them out of my pocket right now. I am less frequent and at congregational prayers than I ought to be, but I always have my thusby, my Muslim prayer beads with me. And I'll pull them out several times a day and just call the name of God, call the name of the prophet, call the name of the imams, right? And so, and that's a very Ismaili approach to things. I feel like there's literally generations of that in my bloodstream. Ibu Patel, founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me in good faith. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the next segment, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps, Dr. Ibu Patel. Do you have close friends of different faiths? How has getting to know them personally affected your understanding of their religion and their religious practices? Have you ever attended an interfaith meeting or an interfaith community work project? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. In this case, four people who work with members of different faiths or of no faith on a daily basis in their capacities as chaplains in various organizations. Jared Anderson is a religious humanist chaplain focusing on the intersection of human needs and religion. He taught university courses on religion for 13 years and now ministers in prison, hospice, and university settings. He hosts a weekly Sunday school podcast called Engaging Gospel Doctrine. Linda P. Walton is a chaplain at Utah Valley University, where she served for 25 years. 
She's a journalist, a PR firm president, a lover of charities, wife, mother, grandmother, and, like the song says, she's proud to be an American. Dr. Barbara Morgan Gardner is on the religion faculty at Brigham Young University. She has a Ph.D. in instructional psychology from Harvard University, where she served as a chaplain at Harvard and at MIT. She continues to serve as a chaplain at large in higher education for the LDS Church. She enjoys traveling and meeting people of a variety of cultures and faiths. Wayne Hull has been an interfaith hospice chaplain since 2010, a graduate of the College of Pastoral Supervision and Psychotherapy. He works for First Choice Home Health and Hospice and is the graveyard shift chaplain for the Salt Lake City Police Department. He's a fifth-degree black belt in martial arts, which he says helps him stay calm in difficult situations. I have something I would like to comment on. As I listened to Dr. Patel, one of the things that drew me to him was the fact that he referred to not only interfaith, but he referred to a love base. And I have discovered that in my work as a hospice chaplain, that it is the love that I have for them. It isn't my faith that draws me to them. Yeah, I jokingly say that chaplaincy is the opposite of academia since, (laughs) you know, I taught college for 13 years and then became a chaplain. And as a chaplain, it doesn't matter what you know, almost. You know, it's just that presence and facilitating. It's really wonderful. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, my parents and my husband's parents, they were all four different religions. And so Thanksgiving was interesting. (laughs) Unfortunately, none of them were very active but it did give us a background, and so we kind of started from there and moved into our own situation. But that's the way it works, doesn't it? Yeah, that's one thing that struck me the most about Dr. Patel <laughs> is the mix of what's in your bones and what's in your tradition mm-hmm. and what's in your vocation. I imagine we'll get more into this, but I, that's a balance that I love about chaplaincy is we can be distinctive mm-hmm. in what we are, what we believe, what our tradition is, as Dr. Patel modeled so beautifully And yet we also reach. One of my favorite things about hospice is that I almost never talk about my beliefs. And yet at the prison, I have a humanist service and I dress in a clergy shirt. So my two jobs require opposite approaches. I would say the same thing as a higher education chaplain. I remember on a number of occasions, especially at Harvard, I was first assigned to be a chaplain at Harvard. With the students, you could talk to them and frankly, as a chaplain should talk to them without them even knowing what your religious background was at all. But as a chaplain serving with other chaplains from a variety of faiths, we all knew what faiths we were representing. But also back to what you're saying, Wayne, with the love part, uh, I think we had a very strong common respect for each other, regardless of whether it was a humanist that we were talking to or a Catholic or a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or a Muslim, that love for our students really led us to a a real love for each other because we were all in it for the same purpose, which was basically to help the young adults and and university settings find themselves and improve themselves in the way that was best for them, regardless of who we were. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting experiences I've had at UVU was I had just been a chaplain for a few months, went to the ladies' room. Don't panic. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But anyway, I looked next door to me and on the floor was a woman and she was sprawled all over the floor it looked like and so I banged on the wall and I said ma'am are you okay do I need to call the EMTs and she says oh no I'm just fine thank you so I waited for her out by the sinks it was a Muslim woman who had been praying on the floor of the restroom and I found out they didn't have anywhere else to go and so I went to the president immediately and it got taken care of and no one would have been an advocate for her because they wouldn't have been in the ladies room (laughs) I mean and that's yeah very unusual circumstance. So Barbara, you were, you were mentioning about chaplains of other faiths. I discovered that I was uncomfortable with other chaplains of other faiths ministering to people of my faith. Mm. I realized that I, I felt like I had corner on the market <laughs> and that if you, I didn't want you ministering to my people because you can't love them as much as I love them. And I discovered through my training with them that the thing that I needed to change was the chaplains of other faiths, they may think or believe differently, but they love the same amount as I do. I mean, not only the people that I minister to, but I discovered that they love God the same amount mm-hmm. as I do. And I thought that was most curious. I've had to redefine myself, redefine God, 
because I realized God was, he was loved by these people and he loved all these people. And I think one of the hardest things too is uh, allowing people from another, these other chaplains to love me. I found that most amazing that some these other chaplains loved me. That probably changed me the most in being able to help and love other people by the face is that these other chaplains love me first. Wayne was talking about the love from other chaplains, and I know that Jared is a, is a hospice chaplain, which is significant to me serving as a chaplain, but also being an individual who was served by a hospice chaplain. I, I remember when my mother was passing away, she was being helped by a, a home health care group and eventually a hospice group. And I remember one, one day in particular, a hospice chaplain came in to help our family probably communicate better or deal with death experiences and things. And I remember at first, kind of like what Wayne is saying, I remember thinking, where is our own religious leader at this moment? We don't need anybody else. We've got this taken care of, right? But it was such a powerful feeling to have her come in and sit by my mom's side and talk with my siblings and just express love. We didn't, we didn't need the doctrine of the church taught at that moment. We didn't need so many things, the rituals that may take place within each religious group. But in that moment, to have a woman come in, and I don't even know her religious background at all, but she clearly showed love. And in that moment, we really needed to just feel love. We didn't need anything more than that. And she just helped us to communicate on a, on a nice, caring, good level. And perhaps most importantly for me is I, I could tell that she loved my mother, even though she didn't know her. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really true. I've been a chaplain at UVU for 25 years. And what I've found is that kids that age are making a lot of decisions. So it's not that they're having a disaster as such like what you're talking about, but it kind of almost is because they've just left their parents' home. They're living on their own. They have to work. They're choosing their major, what party they're going to (laughs) be, if they're going to be a faith, because many of them have said, I don't want to be anything like my parents. And they have all these huge decisions to make. It's kind of like a transition like you're talking about where someone's dying. This one's, they're trying to live, (laughs) but it's a whole new life than they've ever had before. And to be able to help them with that, it's really incredible. I think one of the most interesting things about being a chaplain is identity versus service. And this is kind of what we're coming back to again and again. And the interesting thing is because I have an LDS background, was trained in biblical studies in the South, taught world religions for seven years, and now I'm a humanist, I bring out different parts of me depending on what is needed, which is interesting ethical and practical aspects. And it's so interesting how in hospice work very often, I'm just fluent LDS because that's what's needed. But once I gave a prayer, I walked into an actively dying man's room and he, it was very clear that he was LDS and his niece, the moment I walked in said, will you pray? Like, of course, you know, I'm ready to pray. And I gave a very LDS prayer because that was what the patient needed. Mm -hmm. And then the niece, when I called her after his death, the niece said, I'm so glad you gave a Christian prayer after all that LDS stuff. And I'm just like, I'm so glad you appreciated it. It's fascinating. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you have ears to hear, because we often hear an echo of ourselves. And so it's fascinating to navigate all that. And again, I think Dr. Patel models that really beautifully where he has his own identity and also interfaith service. Yeah, I think that's what being a chaplain is. It's basically serving a buffet. So you mm-hmm. never know if they're going to want potatoes or they're going to want jello or whatever. <laughs> You've got to have the, mm-hmm. the full menu, if you will, and be available to help them with that. And know what you can't do and can do. Like right. Catholic, you know, Catholic deaths, I always find the priest. And right. once I said, you know, can I read some prayers? Can I read some Catholic prayers while we wait? And that was a very humbling experience because they were more experts. Knowing other faiths, I think at least for me, especially as starting out as a chaplain and even in doing interfaith work, you, you have to have a sense of humor as well. Mm-hmm. I remember I was working with an interfaith Jewish group and we were going to the family's house for a, for a meal. And I, looking back, so stupidly asked how on Shabbat they light their houses for Christmas. I mean, it was so stupid. It was such a bad statement on my part. But this wonderful female rabbi who used to be here in Salt Lake just laughed 
at and with me. And we just kind of rolled with the punches. And she knew that I was going to laugh at and with her, too, as she started trying to figure things out. I also appreciate what you're talking about with potatoes and, and <laughs> things of that nature. I I loved and continue to love watching uh, young adults, especially that's my the group that I'm typically working with. I love watching them serve other people with people of other faiths. I remember, again, there's an experience at Harvard where the Quaker group asked if all of us, different chaplains representing different faith groups, could help with the, the poverty in the area. Everyone raised their hands and basically said, we'll bring 10 to 15 this Saturday and we'll do we'll bring clothes or we'll bring food or we'll be in charge of this part of this project and we'll organize it. Every single faith-based group recognized the importance of charitable acts of service and jumped in. And those young adults that are working together, you wouldn't know what faith they were from. Nobody cared. What they cared about was serving and lifting the needs of those who were struggling with poverty. And that's one of the beauty, I think, of, of interfaith work. As Dr. Patel was talking about, is recognizing the importance of individuals and peoples regardless of their background. And not just their faith background, but any background. I wanted to refer back to that in Dr. Patel's story. He he starts off not being very grateful for where he come from. And as he went through all these amazing experiences, he came back to who he where he started. As a hospice chaplain, uh, there's a patient up in Ogden. Uh, the young man was 26 years old, and he has dying of colon cancer. They called me and they said, "Well, they don't. They don't want a chaplain. They just want a nurse." I said, "That's okay." A week later, they called and they said, "Wayne, you need to go." So I went up there, and as I'm sitting in front of this young man, he would nod off and, and quickly open his eyes, and he's he would not allow himself to sleep for fear he would die. And I said, "Why are you afraid?" He says, "I have no concept." Or belief. And I turned to his father and I said, may I ask, are you a man of faith? And he says, well, I, I'm Lutheran. And I said, did you teach your son what you believe? And he says, no, I did not want to burden him with my beliefs. He taught him how to dress. He taught him how, how to speak. And he taught him how to work, but he did not teach him how to believe. And at 26, he had no reference I thought it was a tragedy. I had an hour and a half to try and find something that he could, he could grasp a hold of, that he might not be afraid. But I thought, the young people, you need to have a reference point. You need to have something. Do not abandon where you come from. Add to it, and you might discover you come back to where you started. And, and sometimes you don't. You know, I mean, I think that the majority of times you do. My experience yeah. is that you do, but I also recognize that there are, there are those who don't, and we help people on their path. That's true. And we really try to recognize that there is goodness, and most people, as again, I appreciate that, that Dr. Patel was talking about, that they're, they're reaching after goodness. I do agree that many people will come back to that, those original roots and those bones, per se. And, and one of the things that I also love about interfaith work is learning from a variety of faiths about what is best in their faith. Christer Stendhal calls it holy envy. And it's, it's a beautiful concept to me. I, I look at some of the interfaith work I've done with Muslims, as Patel was, Dr. Patel was talking about the Muslim faith. I've learned so much. I was just in Israel just a couple of weeks ago, and I watched Muslim leaders and members of that faith and their, their strong conversion and watching them pray, and I felt... I recognize I have to do more as a member of my church to show my faith to God. I remember listening to the, some of my Jewish friends and having them talk to me about the Sabbath. And I recognized, man, I, I do not keep the Sabbath day holy like my Jewish friends. And I remember sitting with some dear Catholic friends and, and having them talk to me about their charity and the organization and their authority that they believe in. And, I, and we could go on and on and on and on and on with all these different people and even – I shouldn't say even. I remember being at Harvard again and a humanist chaplain defending this Catholic black mass issue. And he was on the side of the Catholic chaplain. And I remember thinking, this is what we're talking about. We are here to support and lift and build each other. Most of the time, people do grow stronger in their own faith. But also they have a better understanding and a better appreciation, hopefully, of other people's faiths and, and more importantly, of other people. 
you know, it's interesting. I was talking with someone one day, and they were trying to figure out if they were Christian enough. You know, that's always the big thing. And I said to them, and this was kind of shocking, you know, God's really smart. And and they looked at me like I had, you know, blasphemed God. And I said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. If you look at it from a Christian perspective, you look at the thief on the cross, he didn't pay tithe. He didn't keep the Sabbath. He didn't quit doing whatever or start doing whatever. He croaked right there. He was, he believed for five minutes or whatever it was. And, and he's fine. And so I think that's one thing that we have to tell people. You know, we don't have to follow the dots in order to prove that we're whatever, because God will figure that out, and we'll, he'll take care of us and lead us in the right direction. I imagine the rest of you get asked, what on earth is a chaplain? I call it the true. coolest, yeah, the coolest job you've never heard of. <laughs> yeah. And I want to, on a business card someday, I'm a professional, decent human being. <laughs> and I would stump my world religion students because I would, I would ask them, I would say, okay, I want to get a PhD in goodness. I want to like specialize professionally in being a good person. What job is that? And they were at a loss because... Our capitalistic, secular world has outsourced goodness to religion, like almost completely. And so I was so delighted when I discovered ministry and chaplains. I'm like, oh, here it is. And again, as a humanist, I like putting the target on wellness and well-being. And every person is going to find wellness in a different way. I had a beautiful talk with my 16-year-old the other night. My children were raised LDS, but they no longer believe we had the most wonderful talk about death and life after death. And my 11-year-old asked me, Dad, why do you talk about death so much? And I said, so that I can live, so that I can appreciate life. Greg Epstein, I think, has coined the wonderful, you know, humanist chaplain at Harvard that I'm sure you know, has coined the wonderful, we believe in life before death. And interfaith, I focus on the human element of religion, and I a bit tongue-in-cheek summarize my spirituality as life is a big deal, show up. Mm-hmm. And so that way we can trans- – I've studied 12 languages, mm-hmm. and so it's similar. It's like what helps you show up? When we do our spiritual assessments, that's what we do. What are your relationships? What is your source of strength? And that's going to look different for everyone. I wanted to address uh, the concept of being interfaith doesn't mean that your own beliefs become a wash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because you want to love and, and embrace other people in other faiths, doesn't mean that you abandon what you think and what you believe. Colonel Allison, who did my, who was my mentor at the VA hospital and doing my training to become a chaplain years ago, he told of how he went, he was up in the Northwest, and the hospice that he worked for, they all gathered together for a, a seminar. And, and at that seminar, the director of nursing approached him and said, our CEO just had a heart attack and died. Would you please go in front of this 50 or 60 group of people and, and talk to them and nurture them and then offer a word of prayer, but do not mention the name Jesus Christ. And so he, taking the direction, he went up and he, he offered this prayer, but he did not mention Jesus Christ. He said on his way home, it was about a 45-minute drive down through the gorge and the Lord said, if you're going to be ashamed of me, then I will not be with you. And he says it was the darkest time of his life for 45 minutes. He was deployed to Afghanistan, and he had to go in. And at that time, the Army Corps of Engineer, they drilled a well for this, for this village. And they come and asked him if he would dedicate this well. And so he went there, and there's all these men with these automatic weapons. And he realized, what am I to do? Do I close this blessing? And he says, when he got there, he said, he blessed the well and blessed the village, and he said, and I do this in the name of Muhammad, Allah, and Jesus Christ. And he told us, never be ashamed of what you believe, but always include, make sure the others are comfortable with who you are and what you're doing, and that they know you haven't forgotten them in your beliefs. I think that when you made it an extremely important distinction. So all of us here are chaplains, either by profession or by assignment or by volunteering, whatever it may be. And there are certain rules that guide and that chaplains adhere to, or hopefully would adhere to from time to time. And I think for the most part, chaplains do an excellent job in doing that. 
But there's also a distinction between a chaplain and one who is working in interfaith work. Where in interfaith work, one of my assignments at Brigham Young University is to be on the interfaith council. On the interfaith council, when I'm working with different religious groups, they all know that I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But they also know that no one's there to convert anyone else. We have different rules when we're working with interfaith than we do when we're working as a chaplain. But that is also a distinction that is very different from my personal beliefs. So in one day, I can go from a professor of religion where there is no question that I am speaking as a member of the Latter-day Saint faith. And I am believing and teaching, and it's in me that I believe these things, and these students know it, and I know it. From there, I can go to another room and be on an interfaith council, and there is no conversion, and there is no convincing, and we're very careful to learn from each other and understand each other's faith beliefs. And then I can go to a chaplaincy <clears throat> conversation, and the religion that I am from, frankly, doesn't really matter. And that can all happen within an hour <laughs> period of time. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of times I'll talk to other chaplains, and they're going nuts because of that kind of a day. I yeah. mean, you're not bipolar, you're whatever, ten, times 20 or whatever, because you have to keep shifting gears and worry about the audience and not you. Exactly. Good and point. so we have to do our research. And it's like advertising for a business. You've got to figure out what the product or service is. And then do you do radio or TV or online or whatever? And you have to do the same thing with what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, One of the reasons why we do interfaith is for our own good, to figure out what's going on in the community, because we need to know what the needs are and and what's going on. But I think we also have to look at the fact that some things are very similar and some things are very different. Let's find the things we agree on. So let's say it's charity. And one thing that we're doing with Utah Valley Interfaith is that instead of doing just the Easter, Christmas, let's be nice, twice a year thing, what about if we did it every month? And we pick a different charity each month, and we get canned goods one time and clothing another time and just money another time, donate blood another time. Whatever it is, we can all come together and agree on that and do it and help the community in general. You mean they don't have horns? I thought they had horns. Wait a minute. I met them, and they don't have horns. I don't know what to do. And I've literally heard people say that. I think if you get to know people, they're nice. They work for a living. They wear clothes. They have a house. You know, I mean, there's all these things that we have in common. And yeah, there's some things that are different, but get over it. I have, as a hospice chaplain, also ministered to some Muslim, a man from Iraq. And he had come over here after the original offensive in in Kuwait. Uh, He was on an Air Force official. They got him out, but he was the only one who came out of his family. He left uh, his wife and three children and hadn't seen them for 26 years. And he hadn't had access because they lived in such a poor area. The value of being with him, he couldn't speak English, and I couldn't speak Arabic. And I sat with him. I sat with him for a long time. And I think it was more like 10 minutes before anybody, and I just sat there. And pretty soon he looked at me and he said, thank you. And I listened to what he was able to tell me. But first, he needed to know that I would listen in his broken English, he told me some things about him. I reached out to the, the mosque, to his religious leader, and what was most amazing, they said, we didn't know that you would care. So to me, one of the best things that happened from that is these people, they weren't just the only ones worried about this man, that they found that we and the community also cared enough to reach out to him. And I, to me, that that meant so much to me that this this man's mosque, the leaders there, they were so grateful that people of, were not of his faith. There was a coming together, there was some, some walls that come down through that, just that one, that one experience. It was precious to me. I'm in awe of how constructive the interfaith work of the prison is, where all the volunteers of their different faiths are working together. And I think interfaith is kind of a magical recipe because you have a cooperation across distinctiveness that can simultaneously strengthen the, I call it collaborative tribalism, because I don't think we'll ever transcend tribalism because it's so deep in us, but it can simultaneously strengthen our communities because each community is like, oh, we're all going and serving together. Mm -hmm. And then it 
solidifies the bonds of humanity between us. And isn't it marvelous that that can all coexist, that we can be part of the human family and at the same time be proud of our distinctive identity. And I think that's one of the greatest bits of genius with Dr. Patel and the Interfaith Youth Corps and so forth is like, oh, let's all serve together. And then what does your distinctive tradition bring to this? And you don't need to erase it. You know, you don't need to pretend that you're not that particular tradition. And you genuinely do appreciate other cultures. When you get Mm -hmm. to know them, I said before, there's this holy envy where you say, wow, this is absolutely incredible. You are amazing people. And wow, you love your family too? Wow, I had no idea. I thought only our faith cared about families. And then you start seeing different people, different cultures as as extremely important. And you realize if everybody was just like you, we would have a really boring world. There's a poem, I just looked this up by Edgar Guest. I know this is in some ways a little bit um, trite, but I think it speaks a lot to interfaith work. He says this, when you get to know a fellow, know his joys and know his cares, when you've come to understand him and the burdens that he bears, when you've learned the fight he's making and the troubles in his way, then you find that he is different than you thought him yesterday. You find his faults are trivial and there's not so much to blame in the brother that you jeered at when you only knew his name. And then the last sentence of this poem, it's actually quite a long poem, but the last sentence says, when you get to know a fellow and you understand his ways, then his faults won't really matter for you'll find a lot to praise. And, and I think that that's so true with, with interfaith faith work and with chaplaincy. We're really quick in some cultures to say that we're right and they're wrong. And if they act differently than I do, then there's something wrong with them. And sometimes we become quite judgmental. And I think one of the things that interfaith work does is it helps you open your eyes to say, wait a second, maybe although I do think that this is right, there are other ways that are also right. And things that were once extremely black and white can become maybe a little bit more swallowable, or you can become defenders of a person, even if you don't agree with their beliefs, you care for them, and you can fight their battles. And also in interfaith work, they fight your battles. I think uh, we've seen this over and over again, and from the beginning of time almost, and you look at a lot of like religious freedom and things, for example, and people are helping each other to try to figure out how, how to help different groups of people come together, compromising and making the world and our neighborhoods, and our families a better place to live. But if you don't engage in interfaith work, then you have people in circles that aren't engaging, and it just becomes neglect or battles or silence that doesn't benefit anyone. The opposite is the case with interfaith work. You're learning, you're growing, compromising, and it's very helpful. As a police chaplain one particular night, uh, one of the things that happens with, with chaplains is people will talk to you when they may not talk to anyone else. And they may say something to you that they may, and they didn't mean to say to anybody else. And one particular night at a training, or police training, there was a particular ch- a chaplain who took me aside and he says, I wasn't going to tell you, but I have been uh, diagnosed with liver cancer. He says, I don't know why I'm telling you. And I says, I do. And I, I told all the other chaplains, I says, please gather around. Uh, Tim has liver cancer. And what was really amazing, this man who was not a, a member of my church, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he walked up to me and he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a vial, a consecrated oil vial. He took the lid off and he handed it to me. And he says, don't you think you should bless him? I was so amazed. He knew of how I minister to people. I was so touched by that. I thought, I don't know how he ministers to people. I wish I, I was so touched that he said, please, use this oil that I carry so that you might be better at ministering to your people. And we all gathered together and blessed him. But I, I was touched that he was prepared to minister to someone else. Yeah, I wasn't planning on going to prison. <laughs> you know, the, the job <clears throat> position came up and I applied for it for interview experience and then I got it. And as soon as I started walking the corridors, I knew that it was exactly where I needed to be. And it was interesting because in 2013, when I felt my call to ministry, even as a humanist, uh, I knew that I had to minister to the dying and imprisoned. I realize now why that is. I do the volunteer training And the two things I say when I train volunteers is I say, the reason you're getting this training is because what's a good idea on the outside is a bad idea in here. Mm -hmm. 
And then I call prison life skills with catastrophic consequences. The thing I most love about the prison is it illuminates life skills and relationships to such an intensified degree. One of my favorite ways to think about the human experience is ideas incarnate become paradox because we are all so complex. And so one tricky thing, everything is true at the same time. So I learned today that one of the inmates who works for me killed her child a very long time ago. And she is an amazing human being. And I work with murderers and rapists every day. And I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm trying to say that in prison, we see illuminated undeniably the realities that all of us deal with. You know, all of us have incredibly complex relationships to goodness and temptation and struggle. One thing that sits with me every day at the prison is the saying that I do believe in, if until you have faced your demons, you are not good, you are only fortunate. And when I think of the inmates, I'm like, you know, there but context and genetics go I. I mean, who knows? And so all these things can be true where when people come in from the outside, when volunteers come in from the outside, they do see these inmates at their best. And it is so inspiring. I love the family home evening groups. That's one of my favorite things where you see all of these volunteers sitting with these inmates. And in the facility, I'm over men's general population. And that is probably what you imagine with like the face tattoos and the gang members and and everything. But they are sitting, they are singing, they are listening. It's amazing. But at the same time, these inmates in the chapel, it's a sanctuary, they are able to be their best selves, and yet everything is true at the same time. So for example, one of the most ironic, it was like poetry, there was a book on the atonement that a volunteer gave an inmate, and an inmate cut a hole in the chapter where it says, what is the significance of the atonement? And they cut a hole to hide drugs or hide contraband. What a what an image that was. <laughs> you, know, you, you couldn't have designed that better. But I deeply believe that religious services, the programs, the singing, it gives inmates an opportunity to feel human. And I love distilling human nature. And I deeply believe that everything we ever do and say is asking a single question, do I matter? And that's it. That's what we're constantly saying. You know, do I matter? Do I matter? Do I matter? And so it's so beautiful that in the prison, you know, which is one of the extreme environments of society, we are able to enter that space for a moment and say, you matter and I matter and we all matter independent of the mistakes that we may have made. And I think that as we share a message of redemption with these who have done some of the worst things possible, we remind ourselves that we also are able to be redeemed. Well, I would just like to say that I I keep reminding myself that there's, I think, 4,200 religions, give or take, that are official religions. Yet if you look at the golden rule or some of the other basic things that there are, they're secular, basically, we're all the same. And we're all trying to do things to help other people or to improve our own situation, our families, whatever it is. And I think we have to keep that in mind and not badmouth or give another faith a black eye because we heard of some stupid person in some other country that did this bad thing, and so we damn everybody by association. We can't do that. I think it's better for us to realize we're all in this together, and it's just like if you're on a boat that's going down, you're going to help everybody. You're not going to say, well, what are you? What are you? (laughs) And so we need to do that with our day-to-day kind of activity and help people help themselves and other people. On that same note that Linda's speaking about, I recently, as I said, I was in Israel. We went to a Holocaust museum known as Yad Vashem, and we went through with a number of Jewish rabbis and Jewish religious leaders and just those who were Jew, even by culture. I have read since a child everything I could about the Holocaust. I remember going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and I remember listening to Night by 
Eli Wiesel. And, and I remember being so touched. But nothing touched me and softened my heart and hurt so badly as when I went through that museum with my Jewish friends. I left there thinking, I will never let this happen to anyone, ever. And even though I felt strongly before, when I'm standing there with people who have lost their loved ones, and they are telling the story in an interfaith type experience, it changed me. And the only way I could have an experience like that is if I'm willing to get out of my own circle and reach out to other people that I care about. In the Latter-day Saint, we, there's a discourse called the King Follett Discourse. And, and one of the statements it makes in there is just simply, if men do not understand the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. I think sometimes we think that we can understand the character of God by by studying and by praying and everything else. But if God, if we believe that he is the God of all people, I don't believe that we can truly understand God's character until we know all people, until we know all children, until we have let ourselves out of our own box. And the more we understand other people, in my opinion, the more we understand God, and then the better, as Jared is also saying, the more we can understand ourselves. I have gained a tremendous insight as, as an interfaith chaplain, that which I've come to learn is that believing different doesn't mean loving different. I come from a family of 11 children, and one of the great things about over the last 10, 12 years of doing this interfaith work is that the more I'm tolerant and understanding and loving of other people, the more I like my family. I've discovered that they are also different, and I've discovered that I am more open and more loving to myself. I allow myself to be, be who I am. I discovered that inner faith has caused me to be more tolerant of myself and more loving of myself and more accepting of my family. I'm a better husband. I love who I am. I didn't used to like who I am. And I think that's a tremendous blessing. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. Thanks to our panelists, Jared, Linda, Barbara, and Wayne, and especially to our guest from the Interfaith Youth Corps, Dr. Ibu Patel, for generously sharing his stories and his faith In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.